Oren Chola phoned me on uh, Monday. Uh, we're literally just cooking some pizzas as uh, a family. And uh, he said, please, could I preach? And then he asked if I could bring something on prayer. And I thought, oh, okay, what can I bring? But the truth is, actually, I think prayer is one of those subjects we all need to hear more of. Because actually prayer is something that, well, certainly speaking for myself, I struggle to pray. And so I don't come here as an expert this evening to say I have got prayer sorted. Because the truth is, prayer is hard. We can promise to pray for someone. You know, you, you, someone, you, you say to someone, how can I pray for you? And they say to you something very personal to them. And you say, oh, I pray for you, brother. I pray for you, sister. And then what happens? You see them the next week and suddenly you think, oh, I really intended to pray for them. But I just I didn't remember. And you want to be honest and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't pray for you in the slightest. But somehow you just don't quite say that. The truth is we fail, don't we? We fail in prayer. We can start praying. But before we know it, we're reliving a previous conversation with somebody. Or even thinking about buying something on Amazon. And our mind is just gone. Our prayers can increasingly become mere shopping lists. And we can lack that intimacy with God in prayer. But if we're honest, it's not just prayer that we struggle. We can struggle in all sorts of ways, can't we? Our hearts can grow cold. We know what God has done for us. And praise God that we have each here received rich teaching from God's word. And yet still we can grow cold and we can wander far from the God that we love. As we sung in that hymn earlier. Indeed, we can be fighting a particular area with sin. And one day we can be doing so well. Indeed, for a season we can be doing well. But before we know it, it hits us again and we fail. We don't want to fall into that habit, into that sin. But before we know it, we can do. The truth is, we are all failures. Sorry to encourage you this evening, but that's the truth, isn't it? We're all failures. We all get things wrong. And yet this passage has to be, I think I probably say this for every passage I've preached from, but never mind. It has to be one of my favourite passages because it speaks to failures. It, it, it's full of encouragement for failures and comfort. Maybe you're not trusting Christ. Maybe you would not call yourself a Christian this evening, but simply trying to be the very best that you can. Well, again, this passage breaks the illusion. Even your best is just not simply good enough. None of us can simply be better and better and better because... We are all failures. We're all sinners. And this passage points us to the Saviour.
And indeed, this passage before us, um, the way that Matthew has compiled the passage seems to me to focus around the Lord Jesus Christ. As uh, Andrew read that, uh, maybe you are wondering why it was such a long passage, but I, I chose the length of the passage because right in the middle you have Jesus. And surrounded, you have the disciples' failings. If you like, you have the beauty of Jesus and you have the ugliness of the disciples' failings, the ugliness of sin. And right in the middle, you see Jesus' faithfulness. You see the disciples losing control constantly. But Jesus is in control of everything. And it's warm, isn't it? It's amazing to see that. Jesus, of course, is heading to his death. He's heading to the cross. And yet even there, Jesus has so much to teach us in that garden of what true prayer is. Depending upon the Father. That's what prayer is. That's the heart of prayer. Weakness, resting on omnipotence. We'll unpack that a little bit later to see that as we look at Jesus especially. But as we look at this passage, I want us to really see this evening that Jesus' faithfulness gives you and me hope and strength amid our failures. That's what I want us to see this evening. So first of all, let us see what we've already considered already. And that's it. You and me fail. We fail. That's what I wanted to see. First of all, from this passage, we all fail. There are times when we believe that we are perhaps far stronger than we really are. We are overconfident. At times when we do not want to accept the truth. Well, that's one of those times that we face here. That's one of the times we see here in this passage from verse 31. With difficulty, they have perhaps accepted that one of their number may indeed betray Jesus. They've kind of accepted that. That's where we've got to in, uh, this, in the narrative. But then Jesus shocks them all to the very soles of their feet. Look at verse 31. Jesus told them, you will all fail. You will all fall away because of me this night. Now it's as if they do not hear about the word fulfilment of scripture, of him rising from the dead. They don't hear that. All they hear is that they are all going to fall. That's what they hear. They're all going to fall. And they did exactly what you and me tend to do. Oh, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fail you, Lord. I know you're being honest, Jesus, but, but you're not right with me. Because <laughs> I will never fail you. I will never disown you. I will never, ever do that. That's exactly what they do. We all do the same thing, do we not? When someone comes to us and shows us our failings. Oh, I wouldn't do that. That's not me. But that's just what Peter does, isn't it? 
he takes the lead. They try to defend and excuse themselves. Peter says, though, they will all fall away. I get the feeling he's pointing to the other disciples here. Though, they will all fall away. I will never fall away. Despite Jesus then foretelling that Peter will have disowned him three times by the end of the night, Peter further states his conviction. Look at this. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the others said the same. I have no doubt that they genuinely meant all that they said. As indeed we do when we say, I won't fall away, Jesus. But already they are in great danger. It's as if they were saying, Jesus, you're mistaken. I mean, Jesus has never been mistaken yet, has he? Has Jesus ever made a mistake? Of course not. So why would he be mistaken then? They should have listened to him. Or perhaps they believe that somehow the scriptures were wrong. Again, you're in a, such a dangerous position when you go against God's word as they were doing. We are in a very dangerous position when we refuse to accept that we are indeed prone to wander and leave the God we love. We are in a dangerous position when we might say, my heart will never grow cold, because the truth is, it can do. And very often, it does. And this passage reminds us of that and shows us and teaches us that these disciples, though they were the best of men, they were men at best. Isn't that true? It's what we see. And the scriptures is honest with us and shows that these elite, these 11, still failed Jesus at that moment. Maybe we love to identify with the heroes of scripture. You know, David, what a great man he was. But even David sinned and fell far short of what he should have been. Praise God, though, that he understood forgiveness and penned Psalm 51 of that particular occasion where he sinned against God in such a, a strong way, such an open and graphic way. And Psalm 32 again reminds us, when I kept silence, bones wasted away. I confess my sin and you forgave me. But it's only a short time, isn't it, as we go through this passage where we see the disciples' failure. Jesus went with his disciples to Gethsemane, the olive press. And there he took three disciples with him into that inner garden. He took with him Peter, James and John. And yet, as he was there, Jesus recognised that he was overwhelmed. You see that there in the passage? He's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
He craves human company and support. So he wants these three to keep company with him and to pray with him. Pray with me. Wow, what an honour. And yet, it's not long before the inevitable happens. You know this feeling, don't you? You want to stay awake and hear and pray. But before you know it, your eyes grow heavy. Isn't that true? That's what the disciples faced. And they started snoozing when they should be spent in supplication before God. But they are snoozing instead. Despite James and John claiming that they can drink the very cup that Jesus was to drink. And despite Peter emphatically saying that he would never disown him, that he would never essentially fail, straight away we see the signs of them starting to fail. They're not praying when they should be. They're not praying. And so we start to see them already heading towards disaster. Jesus said, pray, but they're snoozing instead. They fall asleep again. Indeed, what did Jesus say to them? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray, pray. But of course they sleep and that happens again. And then this time Jesus cries out, He calls out, the hour is at hand, verse 45. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And the guards step forward to arrest Jesus. And one of them, John, tells us it was Peter. What does he do? He grabs his sword and tries to defend Jesus. His heart's in the right place. But he should have listened to Jesus. You will all fall away. Instead, he harms a person, cuts off their ear. The rest of the Gospels focus on that. We're not going to focus on that now. But Matthew wants us to see that Peter forgot the scriptures. And he forgot who Jesus really was. And so Jesus rebukes him and says... I could have called down legions of angels, 12 legions of angels. Do you not realise who I am? But this had to happen. The Son of Man had to be betrayed. He had to go to his death. Do you not see this? They had forgotten who he was and they still had not grasped that Jesus had to die. And so we see the disciples now all failing. And they fled. They leave him. And then we even have the warning of Judas. He was numbered with the twelve, but was never truly one of the twelve. He was numbered with them externally, but never one with them spiritually. And this man, he did not just reject Jesus. He took a sign of love as a signal so that Jesus could be identified and therefore arrested. How that betrayal must have hurt Jesus, even though he knew it was going to happen. 
would you betray me with a kiss? And so Jesus, therefore, is betrayed through the rebellion of a close friend. He is forsaken by these disciples, all deserted. So here we have, therefore, the disciples' failure. And indeed, Judas's betrayal. It's ugly, isn't it? It is ugly. But here this evening, we have to say, we too fail. If we were there in that garden, trying to be with Jesus, trying to defend him, we too would have failed as well. If we had been trying to stay awake and pray, we too would have snoozed. Because we too are sinners. But there's something I want us to see. Because, yes, we fell. But secondly, Jesus is faithful. Do we not see that in this passage? In sharp contrast to the rebellion and the failure of those around him, we see Jesus submitting to the scriptures. Do you see that theme throughout this passage? We're not going to pick up every reference now. Um, but again and again, Jesus knew that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Verse 31, the sheep will be scattered, comes from strike the sh- a shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, comes from Zechariah 13, verse 7. But the whole of Zechariah 9 to 14 particularly sketches out the king and his victory. And indeed, the king has to suffer, yet he will be victorious. It's all there in Zechariah. And Jesus knew that. And even as he is arrested, Jesus submits to all of that. He knows what's going to happen and he's willing to let the scriptures be fulfilled. He knows why he has to die. He knows that. And he is willing to go to his death. He is willing to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. But here's the thing I want us to particularly focus on. And that is Jesus is not cold or lacking humanity. Do you see that here? It's so thrilling. I mean, we, we, we can uh, r- run the risk when we look at all of these prophecies that somehow Jesus just kind of accepted it and just went just coldly to his death. Well, I know what's going to happen at the end. It's fine. It all works out. I've seen, I've seen the end of the, I've seen the end. It's all going to be good. I'll just go to my death and it's fine. Or worse, that Jesus doesn't have any feelings, that somehow he is removed from us, that because he is God in the flesh, that he's not subjected to the same frustrations and struggles that we have. But no, this passage clearly shows us that Jesus knew what it was to struggle and yet was without sin. He knew what it was to feel something of the pressure that was waiting, weighing upon him. After all, he knew that 
from Isaiah that there would be a cup. The nations, Israel, had drunk that cup, but not to its dregs. But Jesus knew with all those sacrifices, we're, we, we are so shielded by all these sacrifices, but if you were in Jesus' shoes, you would have seen yearly sacrifices, indeed, regular sacrifices being offered. You knew something of the blood and guts of sin, of when animals had to be shed. Makes you realise when John the Baptist said, See, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, of all people, knew exactly what that meant. That he was the Lamb who would have to be broken on the cross. And he knew what that cost him, what that would cost. And he knew what it meant to drink that cup of God's wrath, of his Father's wrath to its very dregs. He knew what it meant and he wanted Another way out of it. Isn't that true? It's what we see here. And yet, if it's your will, then may there be another way. Jesus cries out to God in prayer. Imagine the sun, it's hot. But put that under a magnifying glass and it's unbearable. So too Jesus. He knew what he was facing and the, 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 the whole of his people's sin concentrated all on him. It is no wonder he cries out, take this cup away from me if it's your will. But then look at verse 42. Because Jesus is still faithful, even though he had the weight that you and me have never had to bear. Look at verse 42. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Praise God for Jesus' faithfulness. Praise God that he was willing to drink the cup and did drink the cup. He is not willing to run from the work that he has already started. He was faithful even to the end, even to death on the cross. So there we have those two contrasts, the failures of you and me and the disciples. And yet the faithfulness of Jesus, who was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Indeed, going to the cross to take the very wrath and the wrongdoings that we deserve on himself. Therefore, let us now look finally at hope and strength for failures. Let us have a look at hope and strength for failures. We've already seen that Jesus was actively fulfilling the scriptures and submitting to his father. But he was doing this to bring hope for failures. And there's just a glimpse of that in verse 40, uh, 32. 
Here's this forgiveness and restoration in our text. Look at verse 32. But after I am, here it is, raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Isn't that amazing? It's so small, you could almost miss it. But it's there to give you and me hope. He has said that he would rise before. That's not new. He's already said that. He was already said he would defeat death. But what is new is he's now saying, I will go before you. In other words, your failure is not terminal. Your failure is not the end of the road. Because I'm going to the cross, there is a way back for you. And I am coming back for you. That's an amazing Here is restoration and forgiveness. You might have thought that Jesus would have said, oh, I'm not going to put up with you anymore, you bunch of failures. But he doesn't. And in the same way, he doesn't say that to you and me today. And though we fail again and again, and though our prayer life is far from what it should be, he knows the Spirit is willing. Because we're his. And he knows that he went all the way to the cross so that we can be restored, so that we can be forgiven. Doesn't that bring comfort for us today? Again, those words of that hymn. Come, O fount of every blessing, I remember God's great mercy. By his help I safely come. And I know he will not fail me, but will surely bring me home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering far from God, and to rescue me from danger, shed for me his precious blood. The tragedy of that great hymn, of course, is that the hymn writer did seem to run away from God. And that's one of the great ironies of that hymn. But here's the thing. Even though the hymn writer, we don't know where he stood at the end. We don't know whether I believe he did truly know the Lord. But here's the thing. When you recognise that you are running far from God, when you recognise you're prone to wander, you can go straight back to the cross and know forgiveness. What a joy that is. You can know forgiveness. So whether you have failed him once or a thousand times, Jesus' blood covers your every wrong. Praise God for this. What about Judas, of course? Well, Judas, by his own choosing, had repeatedly rejected Jesus. And... If we had read the, an even longer passage, you would have seen a clue as to why this happened. All the other disciples were saying, who's going to deny you? Who, who's going to betray you? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? But what does Judas do? What does he say? He says, Rabbi. Is it I? Do you spot the difference? He's not willing to submit to his Lord. He's not willing to trust his Lord. 
Because for Judas, he had never truly come to know the Lord. And for us here today, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to that point of trusting him? Can you truly say, Lord, forgive me? Because if you can't, then you run the risk of being in Judas's position, of refusing to call him Lord and having to call him Rabbi instead. Judas is there as a reminder that while we all fell, the biggest failure is refusing to come to Jesus as Saviour and resting in him as Lord. And for that, there is no turning back because you are rejecting the only one who can save you. But for us today, you can know the joy of forgiven, of forgiveness. Well, I said that this passage offers us hope, and indeed it does, but it also offers us strength. Strength in our weaknesses. Look at verse 41. Jesus says that their spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see that there, verse 41? And so he tells his closest disciples that they're to watch and to pray that they do not fall into temptation. They are to be ever alert to their dangers and to seek God in their weakness. Isn't that amazing? Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are frail. But what does Jesus say? Pray. Pray. You may struggle with prayer, but you come to Jesus ultimately. Listen to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find, what is it? Grace. In our help, in our time of need. Friends, you may be struggling with all sorts of pressures. You are swimming in things that are way above your head and you feel like you are drowning. But there is a way out, and that way is simply prayer. Friends, if we can see what prayer truly is, then. We will be there all the more. Because if we can see our own weakness, we will see the importance of prayer. Prayer, ultimately, is weakness resting on omnipotence. That's what, that's what prayer is. It's saying, I can't do this, Lord. And so when we're struggling with prayer itself, what should we do? Help. And we groan out to God. And he will hear us and he will help us. But the problem is we're not asking for help very often. Isn't that the case? We, we know we should pray. And we even say that to one another. Oh, I know I should pray more. But why don't you? 
Well, look to the Saviour and see what he did. In his weakness, in his human weakness, he saw the only thing he can do, and that was cry out to his Father. Well, in the same way, cry out to your Father in heaven, and he will hear you. Cast all your cares and anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. So pray, brother. Pray, sister. There is always a way to pray. It is about seeking God and resting upon him and asking him for help. And indeed, interceding is really asking for help for other people. Isn't that the case? We either ask help for ourselves or we ask help for other people. We probably need to do both. That's surely something of what prayer is. You are to find help as you pray and know that Jesus has gone before you. He is the priest. He understands the struggles that you are facing. But he ever lives to make intercession for you. But there's just one more thing I just want us to see from this passage. Because did you notice, if we're looking for hope and strength in prayer, then did you notice what Jesus did? Remember Jesus. He is the great Messiah. He is the, the, the Son of God. And yet, he takes two people, three people, to pray with him. In his weakness, he says, please come and pray with me. Come alongside. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, the Messiah, wanted the prayers of others. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, maybe you are particularly struggling with a matter. You need your brothers to pray for you. You need to share the struggles that you're facing. You need to unburden yourself. Maybe burden others, but hey, that's what prayer is, isn't it? Sharing the burdens of others and praying together. If you are particularly struggling with prayer especially, then why not phone up somebody in the fellowship? For a brother, phone up another brother and say, can we meet for prayer? Can we pray over the phone? If you're a sister, why not phone up another sister and say, why don't we meet after school and, and pray together after the school run? Let's go for a coffee, let's pray together. Because I'm really struggling at the moment. Because prayer is a wonderful privilege. Just imagine if all the birds only came out once a year. On holiday just this week, it's lovely to hear the birds sing. In fact, I heard an owl hoot. And it was wonderful. Don't get many owls in Thamesmead. Uh, you probably don't get many owls around here either. But it was lovely to hear. But imagine if you only heard the birds one day in a year. Surely you would all be there to hear them. You'll be up at the crack of dawn to hear the birds sing. Because it's such a privilege just to hear the bird song once in a year. But brothers and sisters, we can come to the throne of grace daily because of Jesus. We can come into God's presence 
and know the joy of seeing him or of, 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 of bringing our needs before him of having fellowship with God. Brothers and sisters, let's never lose the privilege of prayer. Let's never lose sight of the, the privilege of prayer because Jesus has gone before us. So we've seen, therefore, our failure. We've seen Jesus' faithfulness. But we've also seen there is forgiveness for failures. And indeed, this passage is full of help so that we seek God in prayer. There is always an ear open. Praise God for that.